uh, Hope Kids, especially kids who are uh, between third and fifth grade, uh, our, our Hope Kids team has been working really hard to try to plan some fun events for you this summer. We know that you have not had a chance to be at Hope Kids for a while. So uh, parents, in the back uh, on the table, there will be some flyers like this talking about some of the events this summer that our Hope Kids team has planned for your kids. So please pick one of these up. I believe there will be an email going out about it as well. Uh, two more quick ones that are uh, things that are uh, sweet but bitter as well. Um, today is the last Sunday for, uh, well, for sure the last Sunday for one family uh, in our church and, and possibly the last for two. And so uh, the Jones family, this is their last, are they here somewhere? Ethan Alley Jones. This is the Joneses family's last Sunday with us um, as part of our church family. The Joneses, I'm sure many of you know them, they have poured themselves out for years and years at Hope Fellowship and we love them very dearly and are going to miss them, but trust that the Lord is going to be working through them in this next chapter in St. Louis. So Please have a chance to say thank you to them and goodbye today before you leave if you can. And then also, after the benediction today, we're going to spend a brief moment uh, saying thank you and goodbye to the Brewer family as well. This may be their last Sunday. They're still finishing up some logistics on moving. But um, So right after the benediction, just for a few moments, we'll, we'll be making a brief presentation to them. So don't go anywhere after the benediction. It'll only be for a moment. Okay, I believe that's it. So if you don't mind turning in your Bible with me, to 1 Peter. We've been out of 1 Peter now for a few weeks. We're diving back in today into 1 Peter chapter 3. So uh, if you don't mind turning there in your Bibles, I'm going to pray for us before we, before we get into this today. So if you don't mind bowing your heads with me, let's go before the Lord this morning. Father, we come to your word today and we are grateful that you have chosen to show us how it is that you want us to live. So we ask that you'd help us today. We ask that you'd be honored with what takes place here this morning. Holy Spirit, thank you that you have joined us. We ask that you'd be working in all of our hearts and that you would show us Jesus as we walk through this passage today. Amen. Uh, I'm curious uh, how many of you have memories uh, of your English classes, but specifically of your, of your grammar classes, the grammar classes in your English, in your English uh, education as you grew up. I'm guessing many of you have uh, something between uh, negative and neutral emotions about grammar. It'd be my guess. Uh, you have to fit all these worksheets that help you figure out what a, what a semicolon is, why you call it an Oxford comma or a Harvard comma, whichever one it is. Uh, my wife, Megan, uh, used to teach fifth grade uh, in Philadelphia, and she would have these chants that she would be learning uh, that would help the students uh, kind of learn all the relationships between nouns and verbs and when you can use certain things, when you can't use certain, certain things. Um, and probably all of you know that feeling when you read an article or a book or something that uses grammar very poorly and does it unintentionally. It's extremely distracting. And it has the effect of essentially like uh, totally destroying whatever that person is trying to communicate. But the opposite is also true. Uh, and for me, one of my favorite books of all time is called East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Um, Steinbeck has this way of kind of drawing you into his characters where you kind of uh, can experience their joy and their angst, um, their hurts and their sorrows. There's kind of this, uh, there's almost this haunting beauty about the way that he writes. Um, he, the way that he does that, the way that Steinbeck communicates all these senses, partly is through his absolutely masterful grasp of the English language. 
And so when you realize, realize this, kind of suddenly some of the, you know, maybe negative feelings about grammar from fifth grade kind of maybe don't feel quite as negative when you realize a, fully, a, a full grasp of the English grammar, English language, can allow you to paint a very vivid and beautiful picture that not only communicates a story to you, but also draws you, draws you into it. Now, we're on our third week in 1 Peter uh, about how Christians are supposed to relate to authority, which is not a very easy, easy subject to continue to talk about. Today, we're talking about how wives and husbands are supposed to relate to one another as well. And what I hope today, what I hope we can see is that these relationships to authority and these relationships to one another are kind of like the grammar that God is using to paint a picture for us and for the world around us of his own character, his beauty, the story of salvation, much like an expert novelist writing his story by crafting just the right relationships between verbs, objects, nouns, etc. So with that said, let's read our passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. to Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, before we jump right into this, I just want to say very briefly, this passage, as we read it, may sound a little strange or potentially even antagonistic to modern ears. But I want us to remember, it's very important to remember, that when we come to passages like this one, that God has given us his word for our good. We don't have to be afraid of passages like this. We don't need to apologize for them. We don't need to explain them away. But we can walk confidently into this passage if we understand what it says, knowing that that is God's good word to us. So that's my hope for all of us today. Now, Peter here is talking about marriage, as you, as you saw as we read, specifically about how wives and husbands are to relate to one another. And those interactions between a husband and a wife are the grammar, as, we, as I said earlier, that write the story of a much, much deeper reality the reality of Jesus' relationship to the church. And so today we're going to see how Peter instructs wives and husbands to live so that their marriage writes the story of the relationship between Jesus and the church. And since Peter breaks it up into two sets of instructions, one set of instructions to the wives, one set of instructions to husbands, <clears throat> we're going to do the same thing this morning. Our first point will be words of life to wives. Our second point will be words of life to husbands. Words of life to wives, words of life to husbands. And it's my hope this morning that as we do that, we will see the beauty of the story that God is writing for the world through wives and husbands relating to one another. <clears throat> so, if you look back down at your passage, if you have your Bibles, we're going to start with those first three verses. 
If you look down at verses 1 to 3, Peter starts by telling wives to be subject to their own husbands. Now, just for as a refresher, we've seen three passages now that have this, uh, have this command to be subject. It's first was back, the, uh, both of them were actually back in chapter 2, first to be subject to human institutions. The second was for slaves or servants to be subject to your masters. And this is the same word, this word be subject, essentially means to obey. It's the same word that Luke uses when he talks about Jesus relating to his his earthly parents, to Joseph and Mary. Jesus chose to be subject to his parents or to obey them because that was a good authority structure that God had built into the world. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is good. Now Peter goes on to say that God finds this kind of obedience beautiful or precious in his sight. The beauty your father finds precious, wives, is your obedience to your husband with a gentle and quiet spirit, not with braids or jewelry. Now, my guess is that as we read this passage, if you're one of our sisters here who came in and you happened to braid your hair today, uh, you might have had a little adrenaline rush as we were reading this. Um, or if you wore jewelry, right, of all days to do that. But uh, this passage is not anti braid, it's not anti jewelry. Um, Peter's not saying braids or jewelry are wrong in and of themselves. And in fact, I actually don't think he's saying that elegance in clothing is wrong either. John Calvin points out that beautiful materials and the skills to make elegant clothing with those materials are both gifts from the Lord. And if you look at your Bibles, if you try to take this passage as anti-braid or anti-jewelry, you eventually have to be anti-clothing as well. And that is clearly not what Peter is saying. Now, Peter is saying... For wives, there is a way to pursue perishable beauty that requires someone to notice you, have their attention fixed onto you. Pursuing that kind of beauty leads to adding things to your appearance that are designed to draw attention. But to use the language of our passage, that's perishable beauty. What Peter wants you to see is that you do not need to add anything to your appearance for your heavenly father to find you precious in his sight. What your father finds precious is obedience to your husband with a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, there's a novel by C.S. Lewis called That Hideous Strength that tells the story of a woman named Jane. Jane uh, discovers that she has this this ability to dream things that are actually taking place in the world. Um, And as, as as she goes through the book, she begins to realize her dreams are actually uncovering specifically this, the works of this evil organization that's trying to introduce an evil spirit into the world. <clears throat> so the good guys find her, they find Jane, they explain to her what's going on, but then <clears throat> they send her back home, and we find out that her husband actually is employed by the evil organization. <laughs> and the good guys are run by this sort of Jesus figure who won't allow her to join the good organization without her husband's consent, which makes Jane really angry as you'd expect, since she views her marriage as this, at this point as this kind of impediment to her being able to serve the Lord, to do good in the world. In her mind, her husband has not done the things that are necessary for her to obey him. But as you read the story, I won't spoil it, but as you read that story, and as you go through our passage as well, there's more going on here. There's actually a, 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 a sub subversive strength. There's this subversive strength to this kind of obedience that Peter wants us to see. So look back at verse 1 with me again. 
at the outcome Peter suggests that takes place through this kind of obedience. It's pretty extraordinary. He says this, So that, speaking of husbands here, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So what Peter is saying here is that the good pursuit of beauty that he's commending here is actually used by God in the spiritual battle for the soul of your husband. I want us to consider this for a moment. This is extraordinarily countercultural, as often God's ways are. <clears throat> Wives, Peter has just slipped into verse 1 that by obeying your husband, <clears throat> excuse me, particularly if he's not a believer, that you are acting as one of God's warriors in the battle that's taking place right now for the souls of the lost. The weapons he's given you are a gentle and quiet spirit and an attitude of obedience to your husband, which in my mind, that kind of messes with my mind a little bit, that that's, those are the tools, the weapons that God is giving you to use in this war. But it's there in verse 1. And this happens not by drawing attention to yourself, but by drawing attention to Christ, to Jesus. Now, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, that marriage is meant to be this analogy of Jesus' relationship to the church. As the church follows Jesus, so wives follow their husbands. As Christ gives up his life for the church, so husbands, both figuratively and possibly literally, are to give up their lives for their wives. What's happening here is this is a little window. Marriages are a little window into a much deeper reality. So wives, what I want you to hear here, what Peter wants you to hear, is that your pursuit of God-honoring beauty through obedience to your husband is one of God's weapons in the war for souls. As we think about this, I think it kind of brings to mind that God often uses very counterintuitive means to accomplish his purposes. And he also graciously chooses to use us to accomplish those purposes. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things to shame the strong. That does not mean if God uses you, you are foolish or weak. It means that the world does not understand what true wisdom or true strength really are. It would sound ridiculous to many of our secular coworkers or family or friends that true wisdom or strength, in this case, is choosing to obey your husband. But that is how God works. His ways are different than ours. In the eyes of the world, a wife pursuing obedience to her husband with a gentle, quiet spirit would not look like a powerful warrior using the tools God has given her to fight or the powerful use of grammar to tell an extraordinary story of Christ in the church. But that is the reality. I think it is worth asking the question here, What does this look like today? And I want to spend a moment by answering that question by looking closely at a few things that this passage is not saying. The first is that this passage is not saying that women broadly are supposed to obey men broadly. Okay, do you see that in verse 1? Peter says, be subject to your own husband. Not someone else's husband, not men in general, to your own husband. I think people can get in trouble by over-applying passages like this to broaden this out further than Scripture is saying. Peter is talking here about the particular context of a wife and her husband. The second thing this passage doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that husbands are always right. This is an important one, and this is perhaps the hardest one to reconcile with the command itself. 
And the reason we can know Peter is saying this is because he uses Sarah as an example of what this kind of obedience ought to look like, and specifically how Sarah treated Abraham with respect, even after multiple instances of Abraham messing up. So read again with me in verses 5 and 6, 1 Peter 3, 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now Peter here is referencing uh, back to Genesis chapter 18, which is, I believe, the only instance we have of, of Sarah referring to Abraham as, with that word Lord, which is just, it's essentially a term of respect. Uh, I'm going to read Genesis 18, verse 12, just so you can get a context for what Peter's talking about here. So read along with me on the screen, please. Genesis 18, 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure. It's talking about whether or not she, at a very, very old age, would be able to have a biological child. And when Sarah said, Lord, she was talking about Abraham. And by Genesis 18, here's what we know about how Abraham has led Sarah. When God called Abraham out of his homeland to follow him, Abraham followed, and that was good. Right after that, when Abraham entered the land of Egypt, everybody, he was concerned that the Egyptians would find Sarah so beautiful that they would kill him because he was her husband. So he told the Egyptians that she was his wife, or excuse me, that she was his sister, and that was bad. After that, God makes a covenant with Abraham promising him that he will, he will multiply his generations greatly, that he's going to bless the world. Abraham believed God. That was good. After that, Abraham uh, allowed Hagar to be introduced into his marriage to try to have a child outside of God's plan for how to do that. And that was really, really, really bad. That caused a lot of problems. And so what we're seeing here by Peter referencing Sarah and Abraham is that uh, He's giving an example of a wife who honored her husband, and it is not because he was always right. She didn't do these things because he was always right, but she also didn't denigrate him or put him down. She chose to honor him as her husband. Which in all of our lived experiences, we understand this, right? We all understand that husbands are not always right. Peter's instruction is not based on the fact that husbands have some ability to always know what's best for the family. It's based on how the Lord wants marriages to function. Now, if you're a wife in this room, I suspect that that can be a hard truth to hold. Because in a moment of disagreement with your husband, the question may come up, what if he's wrong? And what if his decision has bad consequences for us? It's interesting that Peter doesn't give exceptions here. But he does know that that thought is kind of a scary one, a fearful one, as he says. So he draws our minds to the actual head of the family at the end of verse 6 by reminding the wives among his readers what family they're in. They are in God's family. If you're a believer and you're a woman, you are one of Sarah's daughters by faith. You are an heir to the grace of life, which means that your true heavenly father is God himself. And he's watching. He sees you. He finds your obedience beautiful as the, as the passage says, precious in his sight. And he will honor the decision to choose his ways, particularly when it is difficult. 
I also want to make sure we say this. Jesus understands what you are experiencing if this is difficult. He understands, Jesus understands the difficulty of obeying when it means unjust consequences to you. And Jesus understands that sometimes it takes a great deal of faith to do that. The king who made all of us was born in the backwoods of Nazareth, rode into his city on a donkey, and who brought salvation to our world, as Paul says in Philippians, by becoming obedient all the way to death, even death on a cross, a shameful tool of public execution. And so, through Jesus' obedience to the Father, by subjecting himself to the Father, Jesus brought forgiveness for our sins, for those who believe in him. Which reminds us what it means that God uses what appears to be weak to shame the strong. God uses our obedience to defeat the enemy. The enemy's goal has always been to make us believe that we have to be free from authority to be truly happy. And that brought death. Jesus, by his obedience, brought life. And now, Hebrews says, Jesus sits beside the Father and he understands our struggles. He understands your struggles. And this struggle to obey, even when it is costly to yourself or seems unjust, is something that he very, very much understands. Now, before we move on to verse 7, there's a couple caveats I want to put in place here. The first one is this. Obedience to your husband does not mean he gets to ask you to disobey the Lord. We're all first and foremost responsible to obey the Lord's commands. Second, I think this passage does raise the concern about the abuse of authority. There's a fairly common concern in evangelical circles today that this teaching is damaging to women, which is why we began by saying we we need to understand what it is Peter's saying. We need to understand it precisely because If we go beyond what Scripture is saying or we misuse Scripture, then we will do damage to ourselves and to others. I think people have misused this text. They have overapplied this text. Uh, People have told that all women must be subject to all men in all spheres of life uh, without recognizing that in this passage, the context is a marriage. And it's also in the context of verse 7, which we're about to talk about. In the worst case... People can use passages like this to establish a foundation for abuse, whether it's physical or spiritual or emotional or otherwise. And God takes that extraordinarily seriously. All throughout Scripture, starting with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, all the way to the Pharisees, when someone or some group abused God's people, either physically or by twisting God's word, or both, God promises severe judgment. Sometimes that comes in this life, but we all know for certain, we know for certain that it will come on Judgment Day. Now, coming back to this passage, there's a lot of experiences in this room and in the world around us that could cause us to mistrust that this passage actually says what I believe it is saying, or that God actually has our good in mind when he gives a command like this. But my conviction is that, and I hope this will be yours as well, that when God commands what God commands of us, we know will be for our good, and he will give us the strength to do it. Not perfectly, but he will uphold us as we try to follow him in obedience. And he rewards those who follow him. Not with money or influence or necessarily the future that you envision in the future, but he rewards with the fruit of the Spirit, with love, with joy and peace, and patience and kindness 
goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. So, for those of my sisters here who are married, this is my prayer for you, that your joy and love and peace and all the rest would be the fruit of a conviction that your Father loves you, that he finds your obedience to him precious in his sight and to your husband, and that Jesus would remind you and comfort you that he knows your situation, whatever it may be, and when it is difficult, he understands and he will help you in that pursuit of following him. Now I want to move on to verse 7, words of life for husbands, to our second point. Now, you may, as we've been going through 1 Peter 2 and now the beginning of 3, you may be wondering, how is it that Peter gives so many instructions to slaves and servants? Uh, he gives six verses to wives, and then he only gives one verse to husbands at the end. How is that fair? Now, two brief things to say to that. First one, we're getting a peek here into the makeup of the early church. I want to read a quote from a Greek philosopher named Celsus who lived right around this time. Celsus writes this about those who he sees attending Christian churches. It's only the foolish and low individuals and persons devoid of perception and slaves and women and children of whom the teachers of the divine word wish to make converts. What is this preference of sinners over others? Yikes. <laughs> um, you think people have mean things to say about the church today. That was rough. But... Celsus's observation is actually kind of helpful. Uh, we get a sense from his observation that the primary makeup of the early church consisted of people who weren't considered powerful or impressive, which makes, which makes sense. That's what we should expect because Jesus offered mercy and hope and worth to everyone. It did not matter your relative power in the workplace or the culture. So the churches attracted many people who were on the margins and who weren't in traditionally powerful roles. So women and children... Slaves and low individuals, as Celsus says. And these were the people most likely also to be under authority in different spheres of their life who were in the church. And Peter knows his flock, and so he is going to shape his letter accordingly. Now the second thing to note is this focus is not necessarily a negative thing for the people who would have received this letter. As we've said, these are God's words of life. And we know his instruction is not arbitrary. These instructions are for our good. So if the Lord writes a letter through Peter and he gives more instructions to you than to another person, that attention is a sign of the Lord's care and love for you. The Lord desires our good, and this is how he nourishes us. So let's look at how Peter is nourishing the husbands in his flock and the husbands in this room today by showing how their actions help to write the story of this deeper reality of Christ and the church. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now again, this is a fairly short verse that's directed at husbands. But Peter manages to pack a lot into this verse, so we're going to look at a few of the things that he puts in here. First, Peter says, Husbands, know your wife. Know your wife. That phrase, live with your wives in an understanding way, is meant to give this idea of, of understanding her as a person. There may be some like modern English sense that we get of like having to put up with someone. That's not at all what's in view here. That word understanding is, is a word that means knowledge, 
So what Peter is saying is you need to know your wife. You need to seek to know and understand her. If any of you have ever had a new boss come into your company, uh, you know how important it is for that person to understand the company and the team before they start making big decisions about what the, what the group's going to do. We all kind of know this intuitively, that you can't make really big decisions, you can't lead well if you don't know the people that you are leading. So husbands, your wife has just been instructed to follow your leadership and even to obey you when the situation requires it. That places an enormous responsibility on you. And you won't be able to lead well for the good of your family if you don't know your wife well. You won't be able to make decisions that take all of your family's needs into account. You won't be able to draw her mind to the right kinds of biblical encouragement and care if you don't know what she's struggling with and how she's doing. And when a situ- if a situation comes up where obedience is required, you're going to be creating an environment that tempts her towards bitterness rather than trust if she makes the decision to obey without being well known by you. That is not how husbands are to honor the gift of their wife. Husbands, know your wives, who, as Peter says, are to be honored as the weaker vessels. Now, let's talk about what that means, weaker vessels. I imagine people's ears just perked up. What does that mean? Now, this verse is primarily, verse 7, I believe, is primarily about how husbands have to steward their authority well in a marriage and how that leads to life. Now, this is a continuation of that same thought. Husbands, the way that you have been made means that most likely you have a greater physical strength than your wife. I'm well aware not all men are stronger than all women, but as a general rule, most men are stronger than most women physically. And most likely, a husband will be physically stronger than his wife. And Peter says that 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 difference comes with responsibility as well. Husbands, you are to use any strength that you have to honor your wife. And if that principle can be potentially broadened when appropriate, but whenever we encounter situations where you are stronger than your spouse, that presents an opportunity for you to honor her, to give your strength to her rather than degrade her because in that particular situation, she may be weaker than you. So husbands, when you find you're stronger than your wife, honor her by providing that strength to her, to care for her. Because, as we talk about painting the picture of the deeper reality, this is what Jesus did for us. He gave up his strength as God, and he used it for the sake of us who could never have access to that kind of strength. And so we could have access to the forgiveness that we could never have earned on our own. That is how he honored us as his bride, not by degrading us, not by mocking us, not by misusing his strength, but by giving up his strength to save you. And we do this, Peter says, because both husband and wife are heirs of the grace of life. Then he ends by saying, husbands, honor your wives so that your prayers won't be hindered. Now, this is where we get to the consequences for husbands of misusing the authority that God has given you in the marriage. Your wife, husbands, is an heir to the grace of life. That means she is a daughter of God Almighty, and he won't be interested in talking to you if you mistreat his daughter. Now, all of us have heard stories about fathers who, you know, use some tactic to put 
fear into a, a boyfriend who's taking his daughter out on a date, whether that's a, I don't know, a shotgun or whatever it might be. <clears throat> so much more so here. So much more so here. Peter does not go into all of the related consequences of what it means if God isn't interested in listening to your prayers anymore. He leaves a bit of that up to your imagination. He also leaves it up to your knowledge of Scripture that God is not interested in fake repentance of sin if you are knowingly living in sin. There are eternal consequences if you abuse the authority that God has given to you or abuse the strength that God has given to you. So, Husbands, your wife is a gift, a gracious gift from the Lord. She's an immortal being whose heavenly Father finds her gentle, quiet spirit precious in his sight. And so you have the opportunity to use your authority and your strength to honor her, to serve her, and to care for her needs. Now I want to pull back for a moment here and say even if you're not in a situation where your marriage has major, major problems, either as a husband or wife, it could be that at this point you are feeling a little bit of indignation. How is it that God can ask you to obey a husband who may not be abusive or awful, but is definitely not living in a way to really try to understand you or to pursue you or honor you, or who perhaps doesn't find the same things beautiful that God finds beautiful? Or how is it that God can ask you to honor your wife when she isn't willing to follow you and give you the respect that Sarah gave to Abraham? Now, we know from the Gospels that Peter was married when he was a disciple of Jesus. So by the time he wrote this letter, most likely he'd been married for a while. So these objections would not have been new to him. But Scripture rarely gives us commands that are contingent on someone else treating you the way God instructs them to. In fact, it's often the opposite. They are, these, those are the situations when Scripture explicitly commands that we treat them well. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Be subject to Nero. Be subject to your master, even in the midst of unjust treatment. So how is it that God can ask these things of us? He can ask it because ultimately our obedience is not to these people or those institutions, but our obedience ultimately is to God. This is obedience to King Jesus, who obeyed, though it meant suffering unjustly and dying unjustly. But the Father honored that obedience, and Jesus' life now means that you may be an heir to that same grace of life as well. And that is who we obey. That's who we honor when we obey husbands, and that's who we honor when we honor our wives. And we do that, when we do that, God uses our marriages to write the story of the gospel, both to ourselves and also to a world that very much needs this story. One last thing to say here. If you are in a situation where you are in an abusive relationship or marriage, that is not something that you need to stay physically in. And please come talk to me or someone else who's in leadership here. We will make sure that you are safe. Now, I want to say one more, two quick things to those here who aren't married. (laughs) This might have been a difficult sermon to listen to, particularly if your desire is to be married and God hasn't granted that desire you're probably wondering, what, how are you supposed to approach a passage like this one? And as I said, one major way you can get in trouble with these passages is when you begin to overapply them, apply them to context they're not intended for. But let me say, again, two things. First, as we've been saying and seeing, marriage is not the deepest thing in view here. 
It's not the deepest thing. There's a deeper reality, far deeper reality, and marriage is just an image of that. It is an image of Jesus' love for you as one who is part of his church. That reality is one that you are fully part of, the deeper reality you are fully part of. And you will experience the true joy of this reality when Jesus returns. And if that seems like cold comfort at this moment, keep the promise of what is to come in front of you. What's coming will be far, far, far greater than what is right now. Secondly, when you are interacting with people who are married, you have the unique perspective of an outside person who can speak into marriage and remind married people of the truths of this passage. These things are easy for married people to lose sight of when they are in the grind of day-to-day life or in the muck of day-to-day conflict. Just because you don't have lived experience of marriage does not mean that you can't use God's word to counsel people who are married. So don't withhold opportunities to serve your sisters and brothers and help them grow. I hope as we've been going through today, you've been able to see there's a great deal of resonance this passage has with the gospel. Obedience and respect, honor and sacrifice that all come together in mutual love that helps to write the story of the reality of Jesus' love for us as his church. Marriages that give us that picture are truly beautiful. And beautiful marriages come by following this grammar, giving up yourself, giving up your rights, caring for the other person for the sake of your heavenly Father. Because God the Son gave up all of his rights so that we could give ourselves to him. And that's where we can find life. And that's the story we want to help God write in our, for ourselves and also for all those who do not know him. That's the story we want people to see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us these words. We ask that you would use our marriages to help tell ourselves and the world around us of the story of Jesus and his love for us. We thank you that you choose to use weak vessels like ourselves. We know you don't need us, Lord. You do not need our help, and yet you still choose to use us to write the story. So we thank you, Father, for that. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.